0: Good morning. I'll be reading Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the Israelites. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the Israelites, The land that we went through as spies is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the whole congregation threatened to stone them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's just one of these three panels up here with carpet that moves when you touch it, and it happens to be the one that the flame's on. That's very exciting to me. Because I move so much, I'm going to move this over. Friends, if you've got a Bible, you should turn to Numbers 14, which is where our reading came from this morning. Thanks, Ted. There we go. See, now I can jump, and nothing's going to happen. Okay, we're good to go. Got a Bible, Numbers 14 is where we're going to start this morning. I, when I planned out this, uh, set of teachings from the book of Numbers, I got to this section here in Numbers 13 through 15 and I thought, oh, three Sundays should be plenty to talk about one story. That's starting to get a little bit long winded and it's not like I preach for, the, for a really short amount of time. However, we're in week two of three here, and already I'm feeling like we're going to run out of time, and there's so much richness here. So we're in part two of last week's story. To catch you up on how we got to this point, uh, there was this journey that the people had been on to this land that was promised to them, and this land that was promised to them says that it was flowing with milk and honey, so they were very excited to go to this place. It takes them quite a long time to get there, kind of take a roundabout route, but when they finally arrive... Uh, they send some spies out into the land to check out things and see how good it is. And those spies come back and bring a report. There's 12 of them. 10 of the spies say, the land is good, uh, but we can't go in because it's also terrifying. Two, Joshua and Caleb say, we can absolutely go in because God told us to go in. And this is the land that God is giving us. So we need to go on ahead and go ahead. Like, no, this is not how things are going to go down. We're, we're staying here. We need to go back to Egypt, in fact, is the answer. That's where we left things last week was with this congregation in the desert sort of already splitting and fragmenting around fear and promises that feel like they're going to come up short. And so now we're at part two of this story in Numbers 14 you just heard. So before I begin, I'm going to say a prayer for this uh, bit of teaching. But before I say the prayer, I want to say one more time for folks who maybe arrived after 1045... Uh, that in the back here are some massages for all of the ladies in our congregation. Today is Mother's Day, and so in honor of all of the mothers, uh, and in honor of God as mother, in the way that God is presented often in the scriptures, uh, we have back here just a little bit of affection for you. Um, so, any ladies, any girls that are in our congregation, mothers or not, that is for you. There's just a line and some chairs back there. You can queue up whenever you're ready. You can leave your name on a sheet, and then one of the... Uh, these professionals who've shown up today will, will help us out. And thank you all for being here, Monique and team. We're really glad to have you. Uh, okay. Is somebody going to clap? <laughs> Feels like whoever started that clap probably got one of the first massages, huh? All let right, right, let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll continue. God, more than opening our minds this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts. That we would feel what it is that you are trying to show us, to tell us, to give to us. We breathe in your spirit this morning and we breathe out all the fear and anxiety we walked in with. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Numbers 14. By the way, if you don't know, these are emojis. Do we all know what emojis are? These little like new language that we invented that is uh, the most reductionistic, like least poetic way to talk to one another. But it happens to be the way that everybody talks on their phones. Uh, and so this is just like a whole bunch of cry faces and then one cursing face at the bottom right. Because that's what it feels like this story starts off like. If you read the first few uh, verses of chapter 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and all the people wept that night. All right, that's a lot of crying and a lot of whining. I'm going to say whining, not just crying. You know what I mean? That's what the tone is here. And then the very next day starts the very familiar emotive state. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, whether we had died in the land of Egypt, they begin to crave not just going home, but they begin to crave a predictable kind of death. It isn't that they're exactly concerned uh about the dying that will happen in life. It's the way that they might die. It's the way their families might get carried off in captivity if they go and they take this land. So they say, let's appoint a captain and let's go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron are in charge, by the way, and their response to this is not the best. Which is they just simply stay silent. They like fall down. They have this moment of being overcome by the emotions of the nation. And so it falls to this new character that shows up in the story. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, who were among those who had spotted out the lands, they tore their clothes and they said to all the congregation of the Israelites. And they begin this counter speech. Here's the phrases that they use. The land that we went through as spies is an exceedingly good land. That's the language of me'od tov. Me'od tov means very, very good, super awesome, in the way that my, like, three-year-old daughter would have said it when she was three. This is super awesome. Me'od tov, do you know where else this phrase comes from? Anybody? Yes, it's Genesis 1. It's the language of creation, finding its completion. When God creates, God creates with speech, in kindness and tenderness, and each time says that this is good, that this is good. And then after all of creation says, oh, this is meod tov. This is very good. That's the language of Joshua and Caleb. When they see the land, they can identify it. it it's to be well, that's the way that it reads on the screen. So that's the way that it's got to be today. Tov meod, meod tov. Meod means very, tov means good. This is very good. This is like a primal kind of good, like the beginning kind of good, like before everything got screwed up kind of good. This is the good that is for us. Now, the garden is the place where violence isn't even present. The whole point of the creation story and the way that we receive it in our Bible is that God creates without interference and without violence and without resistance from this world. God speaks, creation responds, and goodness flows forth. Like the rivers that run through the Garden of Eden, there's this overflow, this abundance that happens in this primal place. And somehow Joshua and Caleb can sense God's primal goodness at work in this land that is new but is familiar in the best kind of way. This land is exceedingly good. This is Meod Tov land. we got to go. We've been looking for this our entire lives. And so they continue. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Which brings us to the next word I want to tell you all about. Chafetz. Y'all can say that one with me because it's got a lot of fun. Chafetz. Your turn. Oh, kind of good. Chafetz. It means like to find pleasure or to delight in. To be pleased with. It's a little bit of a racy word. Uh, uh, There are a lot of innuendos inside of this word. Anytime... Emotive states show up in the Hebrew scriptures. In the Old Testament, they are often coded into sort of bodily speech. So strength is understood as like the hand, or anger is like when your face or your nose gets hot. This here is when all of your insides start to come into alignment as you see something that you desire or someone that you desire. This is actually the language of lust. God is craving these people. Got like a crush on them. That's the sort of thing. Twitter-pated might be the way that you talk about it in church. Do y'all know that word, Twitter-pated? Isn't it from Bambi? Isn't this the land of Disney? Nina, you're shaking your head yes. Did I get it right? Yeah, it's when you sort of like in the springtime find a new, like, beau, a love, an interest, and then you get the hafates. This is how God feels toward them. That's what Joshua and Caleb know to be true, and this is why they feel okay walking into the land without fear, because God loves them, desires them. And nothing else matters. Only don't rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they're no more than bread for us, which is a sick Old Testament burn. No more than bread for us. Their protection is removed and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. But the whole congregation arose in consent and said that's a great idea joshua and caleb let's go to the land all of your points make great sense no what does it say at verse 10 they decide that they're going to stone them which feels like an overreaction to me although all the time whenever someone's going to get stoned it feels a bit like an overreaction The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting of the Israelites, and the Lord said to Moses, and now the Lord gets to speak. How long will this people despise me? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? So let's hold for just a minute. There's a lot of different words and ideas that are connecting here in this story there are two different ways that i love to think about and to explore scripture one is a deep dive into small little bits of text and as you pull them out they open up treasures that like have been there all of the time it's like bart says interpreting is like trying to drain the ocean with a spoon. That's what it feels like when we engage scripture. The other way that I love to walk into the Bible is to pull back and look at an expansive view and how is each text talking to one another. And in this conversation, in this chorus of voices, what is the story being told? So if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Psalm 18. We're going to stay with this word, for just a second. This is a psalm of rescue. It's a beautiful psalm in its entirety. But I want to read just one section for you. This gets accredited to David, Israel's good king. But the voice that David speaks in is the voice of the wilderness because David spends a lot of time in the wilderness when he's running from the powers that be who want to take his life, namely King Saul. He is in the space where Israel spends most of their wandering days in the wilderness, And says of God, and see if this sounds to you like the exodus. See if this sounds like God's rescue of God's people from Egypt. God reached down from on high and took me and drew me out of the mighty waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. They were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He delivered me because he fates, because he delighted in me. David understands that God's actions toward him are not because of some greatness that have been earned from David, but simply because God loves, and God's love is evidence in God's rescue. It says that God brings David and brings Israel into a broad place. The left is the Hebrew word for Egypt. It's the word mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, at its root, means a constraining place, a very tight-quartered place. It's like getting shoved inside of a closet and then a bunch of other boxes and clothes getting shoved in that closet and then the door's shut and it's locked from the outside and it's really, is anybody claustrophobic at this point? Or it's just like being in a portalette. That feels like what Egypt is like. Nitzrayim, this constrained and constricting place. On the right side is this language, Mirchav, which is the language of a broad place. Very... Viscerally, God moves Israel, moves David, moves us from a place that is constraining and suffocating to a new place where we can breathe deeply. Now, all of the like fancy Hebrew and Greek words and all of the seminary learning. And if I just simply said to you, would you like to be able to breathe deeply instead of shallow breaths of desperation, which is where a lot of us live? That's the breath of anxiety and of fear. Would you just like to no longer feel like you're suffocating in this world, but be able to breathe deeply and feel alive? Like, that's enough right there. Right? Which one of those worlds do you want to live in? Mitzrayim or Mirchav? Take a vote. Who's for Mitzrayim? Nobody wants to live in a portalette. Perfect. Mirchav. God brings us into a broad, an expansive place where we can stretch out, where we can settle and be at rest. This is what it means to be in a relationship with a God who delights in us. But when God responds, God says, okay, sure, Delight, Pleasure is my emotion towards you, is the way that my heart moves toward humanity and toward this world. But your movement toward me, God says, is this. Naats. Why do the people despise me? God says. Why do they hate me? Why do they not understand that all that I have done up until this point has been because of my pleasure? Pleasure and delight in them. This is the language of contempt. But it is voiced very specifically like a jilted lover, which begs the question what kind of story is this? On the face of it, it looks like a conquest narrative. Again, this is the like, if you're sort of zoomed in right on it like a microscope, it looks like a story of God telling God's people to go into the land and with the sword take it by conquering it, violence and sweep away all of the idolaters and move in and take up residence. And that is one way to tell that story. But the way that scripture as a whole is telling this story of God's deliverance of them into the promised land, predicated on God's delight for them, And then in their obstinance, understanding that is heartbreak. This is a love story. That's the kind of story that is being told in Torah. Now this, when Jesus comes on the scene and says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. My ways and means through this world will reveal to you The things that have laid mysterious of God. When you see me, you've seen the Father. We can get caught up in the rules and regulations. And in Torah, in those first five books of the Bible, the middle in Leviticus is all law, is all commandments. It can start to feel removed, like some kind of judicial understanding of the relationship. You do A, B, and C, and then good things will happen to you. We call that an act consequence model of the world. I will love you if you do these things. That is a terrible way to live. If you've grown up in a house like that, where affection towards you is only contingent on your behavior, then you will feel like you've, I mean, that's all, that's Mitch Ryan right there. You never get to take a deep breath. Oh. And I'm sorry if, if that has been your experience. It's a lot of people's experience. This is a love story, but it's also a story of love that falls apart. And that's what you hear in God's speech. Why do they hate me? Why do they have contempt for me? Why do they despise me? All I have done is loved them. This is just simply the sign, the symbol for separation, two that were once joined in covenant in oneness and unity have been broken apart by fear and anxiety and doubt. I've said before that the book of Numbers is one long conversation about how to keep faith, about how to trust, about how to be loyal, how to understand God as faithful. This right here is the breakup of that fidelity, is the ending of that union, and it often dissolves in broken trust and broken faith. And this is exactly what we see in this story. There is a um a therapist who's written a bunch of books and he has this uh he has this thing he says which is that he can predict which couples are going to get divorced after only watching them for like a few minutes as they interact with one another. Which so that sounds terrifying to me. But the success rate's like really high for this guy. And, uh, as I was reading a little bit more about this, this week, uh, there is one thing that he looks for. And if it's present, the likelihood that that marriage will survive drops way, way, way down. Can you guess what that thing is? Money. <laughs> money. So, you know, it's, <laughs> <crazy>. Perlman here <laughs> says money, and he's laughing. But we do try to find other things that are easier to hold on to, like money or like, well, they just don't do this thing enough or they keep leaving dishes in the sink or something else that's easier to quantify for why relationships don't hold center. But this therapist, the one thing that he sees is na'atz, is contempt. If he can sense contempt in the relationship between two people, it is a huge predictor of their dissolution at some point. And what does God sense in God's people in the wilderness if not their contempt and their eye rolls and their cynicism and their doubt of God's goodness? And we see God knows that this is going to be difficult, that this is going to be one long loop over and over again of our failing in God's faithfulness. It's a story of heartbreak. There wasn't, at this time, this sense that like you just wouldn't believe in God. That wasn't an option. It was how you understood the God present in your life. Do you understand this God as terrifying, as hateful? Or do you understand this God as affectionate and loving? The language in the Bible is chesed, steadfast love and loving kindness. One or the other will dictate the kind of God that you experience. But, this same author talks about contempt, says that there is an anecdote to contempt. That if that is present in your relationship, it doesn't mean that your relationship is doomed. So everybody here who's been practicing eye rolls with your couple, with your partner, with your closest friend, take a deep breath because there is a way through this. It doesn't have to be the end of all things, even if contempt is present in your relationships that are deeply meaningful. The anecdote is, uh, gratitude. It seems so simple. To be grateful to change your relationship with memory, with history, and with the past. So when God speaks like a spurned lover, like why do they despise me? Why don't they trust me? Why can't they see all of this reaching down into Mitzrayim, this constraining place, and pulling them out into Merchav, into this broad land? Why can't they understand that this is my love for them? The past has become a catastrophe to this nation of Israel. We should go back to where we were going to die before because we don't want to die here. They only remember brokenness everywhere. Death back there, death ahead, death in the present. There is no hope anywhere. The word that shows up over and over again most In the book of Deuteronomy, when the people are standing at the edge of the land, about to step in, is the language of Zachar, which is to remember. The correct memory is one of the keys to following after God in fidelity. It's to remember God's actions in the world correctly. And Moses says over and over again, when you enter into the land, remember all the things that God has done for you. Do not forget this is calling forth gratitude in a people who have learned to despise God. Remember what God has actually done for you, where you used to be and where you are now. Zachar, remembering correctly, is the anecdote to the despisement men and contemptuous nature that Israel has toward their God. Again, I don't want to be too harsh on Israel because we all are in this space. If you've been fed your entire life that God is waiting for a reason to be angry with you, then you will have a certain kind of love-hate relationship with your God. A sense of dread, not respect or affection. We have been handed all kinds of broken stories about religion, about faith. And we're trying to live best through them, but often not knowing how to set the hard and like, broken parts of that story so that we can pick up the more true versions of it. And this is Israel. They've been enslaved for so long that it's like just so natural that they would not trust the person in charge of them. Pharaoh was quite a destructive ruler. And so they doubt goodness. Now, let me just say a little bit about what it means to be grateful and memory as it concerns a relational sort of affection. Today I am less concerned with whether or not you can parse out Christian doctrine, whether or not you can name all of the books of the Bible. I am not concerned with your amount of brain knowledge about this book or this faith. I am much more concerned with whether or not you can apprehend and comprehend God's affection moving toward creation. And that's all. If we can get that together, and it's, that's probably all I'm going to do for the rest of my life is work that out with people and myself, then we'll be partly on the way. Um, we've been married now, my wife and I, Corey. It's Mother's Day. I asked if I could share these stories with you. And uh, we've been married now for 16 plus years. That's right. We got married in 2003. I love that you had to think about it for a moment. It makes me feel better that I had to think about it for a moment. About 16 years. We were married in Uh We have... You're like maybe the only person I've really dated. Uh, you were cooler than me, so you had other boyfriends before we met. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been together for quite a while. And uh, like things are still working out. We like each other a lot. We're good friends. It's not always been that way because marriage is marriage and being close together can be difficult at times. And so let me show you a picture of when we first got together. That's from prom, which dates me a little bit. Yeah, so we went to prom and homecoming together. And uh, we did the whole thing, like wrote love notes to each other. I mean, it's so sappy. If you married somebody you didn't go to high school with, your like treasure troves of memories are way less embarrassing than mine. Because mine include things from when I was 16 years old. Uh, but, you know, 16, 17, 18, you get to your 20s. Like, you still have all of your ego, but none of your humility. You have all of your knowledge, but none of your wisdom. Still working on all of these things. And so marriages move through those wilderness periods, those difficult periods where you've got to figure out if you still love each other or if you still like each other. If you've been married for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. Right, This is not like new information. Please don't pretend that because the pastor's up front talking about it that his marriage has been perfect the whole time that he's been married. That's not how this thing goes. We are all in this struggle. I remember though after like a multitude of just failing after failing particularly on my part early, selfish, that kind of thing thinking I need to practice because what is entering into our relationship is starting to become like chronic eye rolls at one another. And so it was like the simplest of practices ever, which is... And I may have told you this before, but I'll tell it to you again. I just simply started writing notes each morning. Just like one thing that I was grateful for. This practice of gratitude every single day. And there were days where I wasn't like super feeling it, right? I'm so thankful that the laundry is done today. Thank you for doing that, John Ah, uh, But... Shifting your attention toward those parts of the relationship. It it does change things. It's a practice I have to return to each time I can feel any meaningful relationship move toward the wilderness again. I've had the same kind of practice with congregations. Where being in this position where we are in an intense kind of relationship with one another. Like sometimes we don't always get along. And one way or the other can turn contemptuous. I think often about our early months together, like that kind of honey. We even call the first couple of months of pastoring a church the honeymoon period. And we kind of laugh at it, but that's what it's like. It's remembering well for when things get difficult. This is the work of Zachar. This is what God keeps giving God's people to heal them from the inside. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And remember what I did for you there. Remember how you used to live. Remember who you used to belong to. Remember the mighty acts of your God. And these acts were done not to prove my power in the world, God says, but to prove my affection for you. God's ego is not so insecure as to need us to prop up his power, even though we talk about omniscience and omnipotence all the time. But what does it mean to be all loving? If that is at root who our God is. The first verse we always learn in church is this one. For God so loved the world. Agapesin hatheas tan kosmos. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave everything. This has always been God's movement towards this world. Evidence in creation, evidence in the exodus, evidence in this heartbreaking story from Numbers 14. Over and over again, the prophets say it. God has always been moving love and affection toward us. And that love and affection is not contingent on our behavior, but simply on who God is. This is what the movement looks like. This correct memory, it begins to take over Israel's own remembering of this story. So you can find retellings of Numbers 13, 14, and 15 in Deuteronomy, in the Prophets, in the Psalms, as Israel remembers what happened here. And their memory of it is very different than the way that Numbers tells the story. This book has been all about Israel, like, flip-flopping and falling down on their faces and, and screwing up over and over again, the grumbling and the complaining, but when they retell this story, they have a different kind of memory. Particularly, the prophets transform this pain into beauty. They only remember the way that God carried them. Hosea says it best Therefore, I will now seduce her. God is speaking. God's people. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. From there, I'll give her vineyards, make her a valley of a core, a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth. Can you feel the way that Israel is remembering so differently? She will respond as in the days of her youth. God craves, God calls, and then Israel responds with affection. That's not how this story is exactly told, but over time, it's what they're learning to do. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt on that day says, Lord, you will call me my Ish, my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, my master or overlord for I'll remove the names of the Baals from your mouth and they will be mentioned by name no more. And I'll make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, the birds of the air, the creeping things on the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword and the war from the land and I will make you lay down in safety. I will take you as my partner and spouse forever and I will take you in righteousness and justice and chesed and steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my spouse and faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. This is the language of Hosea. This is good remembering. In case you want to know what that word no means, K-N-O-W, it isn't simply the like, what you can get right on the test if you can unlock the knowledge. It is the way that Adam knew Eve in the garden. It is intimate language, personal, evocative, and you will know the Lord. This is the story that is being told. This is the story that Jesus comes and reveals in greater fullness. God loves us like we are called to love one another in our deepest relationships, which is why the two main metaphors for God's love for humanity are that of marriage and that of parenting. Mothers, can I get an amen? What does it feel like to love your children in such a way that it breaks your heart all the time? That is the way that God loves us. What does it feel like to see your beloved and crave them? Like the Song of Song talks about those two lovers wrapped in embrace and intoxication. That is the way that God loves us. This feels different than the religion I was handed. This feels more tingly, Twitter patient maybe. This changes my fear of the world and my fear of the future. This is what is pushing the sails. Not fear, not anxiety but deep and abiding affection. The one who happens to be all-powerful, that helps. Now, there is a great danger in taking the religion part and leaving out the love part. It's like an AR-15 machine gun on the top. And there's the hazelnut on the bottom. The knowledge of religion is not what God is interested in, in this journey that we are on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your oomph with all your strength, all your gumption. A couple weeks ago, south of us in San Diego, there was a shooting. Uh, Labeled as a hate crime, perpetuated upon our Jewish brothers and sisters. And this is starting to get so frequent that I've gotten to a space, and I'm sure some of you have gotten to a space that is what we would call compassion fatigue, where you just can't absorb this amount of sadness all the time. Uh, But this story caught my eye for a different reason. It's because the person who had done the violence was both like undergirded by a really dangerous ideology of hate and racial supremacy, but also undergirded by a deep theological conviction, an understanding of the way that God works in the world. There's this really twisted version of something we would call like um, the new Calvinism and come talk to me over coffee and we can spend way too long talking about these things. Uh, but what it is at root is it is religion without love. It is the sense of superiority because you think that you've got the God that's stronger than everyone else has got on your side. From something that was released online, a bit of a manifesto from the person who did the shooting. One of the things that he said stood out to me in its like absolute inversion of the story God has been telling all along. Uh, there is no love without hatred, he says. You can't love your own race if you don't hate those who wish to destroy it. Love and hate are two sides of the same coin. Uh, we can dismiss this as the act of a fringe person operating on something that is very different from our faith. But a lot of us grew up in religions that had nothing to do with love, that were undergirded by fear and anxiety. The gods that we might have inherited, the story that we received, is that God is really upset unless you get it together. Like a parent with the belt or the paddle and not with the embrace. There's another way to understand God's movement toward us that is different from this top picture. And there's been very many versions of religion divorced from love across the centuries. And whether it's been the sword of the crusade or the pogroms during high holy days or any other kind of violence done in God's name, religion can be the most dangerous kind of ideology if not full of affection for God's world. One of my favorite people, I've said her stuff to you a lot, is Julian of Norwich. Probably the first uh, woman to be published in the English language. And uh, she wrote the showings, a revelation of divine love. She had a near-death experience after a, like a really intense illness, high, high fever, hallucinations. She saw Christ's suffering on the cross. It's like all she wanted is to see Christ's passion to be with Christ in that moment. And she had this experience while she almost died. She spends like the next 20 years trying to understand it. And she comes up with this brilliant text called the Revelations of Divine Love. In there, she has this vision of a hazelnut. She says that God shows her this hazelnut. And she says, what is it? And she's told it's everything that ever was and will be the totality of creation is here. He showed me a small thing the size of a hazelnut nestled in the palm of my hand. It was round as a ball. I looked at it with the eyes of my understanding and thought. What can this be? And the answer came to me. It's all that is created. I was amazed that it could continue to exist. It seemed to me to be so little that it was on the verge Of dissolving into nothingness. You remember last week? We saw those giants in the land and we looked so small in our own eyes and we looked small to them. How could this be everything? It seems so fragile. How does it exist? And these are the words that entered my understanding. It lasts and will last forever. Because God loves it. Everything that has its being has its being through the love of God. It's really hard each time I come to this part of our story the love of god to feel what it means because love has been stripped so many different times of its deep truths that we confuse it with something much more surface level like a pop song on the top 100 chart but we are talking about something different here or something deeper here where those other things are just like a glimmer or a flash of the deep fame flame that might be possible in god's movement toward us in this world that we would call love in the new Testament. You see it in John, you see it in First John 4, especially that God is love. And the way that we understand God's love is if we love one another. That's, that's the proof. Jesus shows up on the scene to reveal the ways of God toward creation. Only understood after Christ's resurrection. I was thinking a lot this week about this difference between Mitzrayim, this constraining and constricting place, and Mirchav, this broad land. And it made me think that there is no place more Mitzrayim, more constrained than the grave. And it is exactly where Christ goes, where love compels Christ to go. Into the most suffocating of spaces. Even the crucifixion itself is an act of constraint. The way you die in that space is because you can no longer breathe. Everything's put out of sort and out of joints and you can't find life anymore. And Jesus breathes his last and cries, it's all finished. Christ goes into this space that is constrained not to leave us there or to stay there, but to move us into a broad land of Mirhav. And what is given by Christ upon the resurrection is the deepest of breaths, is peace given by God's Spirit. Peace I leave you, not as the world gives it, but as God gives it. And then when Christ departs and they are left together to understand what has happened, they are given the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. And like rushing wind, they find themselves in a brand new land where everything is possible. and The world is wide again. And their hearts are on fire. I will say they still live in a land occupied by Rome and yet everything has changed. Because they understand at the deepest level, past speech and language, that God loves them. And they are now free to love the world unencumbered. This is our call. This is our mission. This is everything God is handing to us. May it be so. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for these friends here the ones who have not felt love in a long time, felt the embrace of a friend, of a partner, of a parent whose lives are isolated and lonely, we pray that they would find your affection in one another. And God, I confess it's hard sometimes to feel the divine love coursing toward my own life I'm blind to it often because I'm blind to the way you're present in those around me. The gift you've given me of one another. And you offer that to all of us. So pull us back into communion, into covenant, into belonging. Catch our hearts on fire. That we would not be afraid of this world, of the arrows that are slung in the night. That we would move in our innermost being, into the wide land that you have on offer for us so that we can breathe deep of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.